The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Well, it is indeed the first Sunday at Advent, and so we're not going to have an Advent sermon. Sorry. In fact, uh, I very much intend to misbehave today, and I hope you'll misbehave with me and enjoy it, uh, because after all, it is the Word of God. So I'm going to ask you to, to grab your Bible, whether you're using paper or like me, you're, you're using electronic, and open it to Genesis chapter 38. Put your finger in there. Now, normally, when I preach, I would ask you to stand. Don't stand, because I'm not. I would ask you to stand, and we would read the passage of Scripture together that we're going to be walking through. But we're not doing that today. Okay? I'm going to tell you a Bible story, and I want you to have your Bible open because I will be pointing to you two specific points in the text, but in general, you need to keep an eye on me to make sure I'm telling it straight. Okay? Now, that's important. Another thing that's important about this morning is that this is going to be an audience participation sermon. Okay? Now, you all know the, 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 the old tradition when the preacher says something like, and all God's people said, you say what? Okay, so we're not doing that. Okay? So here's what we're going to do. Right? Today, when the preacher says, and all God's people said, you need to curl up like you just tasted something foul and go, Whoa! okay, you ready? We're going to practice, okay? And all God's people said, not bad, you, not bad. You guys have had practice doing this. Okay, that's what we're going to do, okay? So you, you, so you got to stay with me. Now, let's pray because clearly we're going to need it. <clears throat> Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you, Lord, ourselves, we don't take too seriously. You, your word, we take very seriously. We pray that your spirit would move in our hearts, open our minds to understand, our eyes to see, our ears to hear, that we might be transformed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up loving Bible stories. I love stories in general. I was a history major at the University of Maryland, and what I love about history are the stories. Don't care about the dates. Love the stories. But you notice that there are Bible stories that your Sunday school teacher doesn't ever tell you? Have you, have you, have you noticed that? Now, I'm going to tell you one of those stories today. Now, don't worry. We're going to keep it G-rated. This is a family show. But... I want to tell you a story about Judah. Now, there are really only three stories where Judah is a significant character in the Bible. The real, historical, actually lived and walked the face of the earth, Judah, shows up three times in narratives in the Bible. Now, the first time was when Joseph was young, uh, and he had had all those dreams, and, and, and you know the brothers were going to bow down to him and all that, and, and, and then... 
Jacob sent Joseph up to check on the brothers. You remember this story, right? Joseph goes up, and, and the brothers see him coming, and they decide, here's our chance to get rid of this guy. So they throw him in a pit, and they decide they're, they're going to murder him. After a while, they think about that, and they realize, you know, that whole murder your brother thing didn't work out so well for Cain. So what are we going to do with this guy? And it's Judah who sees the Midianites coming down the path and comes up with this amazing idea. Hey, let's sell him into slavery in Egypt. I love Judah. He could be a great American businessman. Right? I mean, he knows how to take a liability and turn it into an asset. But think about this guy's character. This is a guy who is willing to sell his father's favorite son into slavery in Egypt, knowing that it will destroy his father, thinking that his son has been killed by a lion. You know, the name Judah has a meaning to it. Most Bible names do. It means praise God. Clearly, Judah's life does anything but that. That's the first story we get about Judah. The second story that we get about Judah, well, it shows up in, in, in starting around about Genesis chapter 42, 43 in there. And this is years, years later. I mean, Joseph's been down in Judah. Uh, sorry, Joseph's been down in Egypt for all these years. He's risen to be the number two man of the land. The, the years of plenty have come and gone. All the food has been stored up. Now it's the years of famine. And of course, the famine hits more than Egypt. It's also hitting uh, Canaan, where, where Judah and Jacob and all the rest of the kinfolk are. And, and so they hear that there's food in Egypt. They go down to buy food. And you remember this story too, right? Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And so Joseph throws one of them in jail, accusing them all of being spies. And they, they, they say, no, 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 we're not spies. And, and he says, well, yeah, prove it to me. The next time you come down, bring your father's son, Benjamin, with you. Now, Benjamin is also a name with meaning. It means favorite son. And so you bring that son down. And, you know, what happened? They, they go back, and J Jacob says, uh-uh, you are never taking that kid down there. If anything happens to him, like happened to Joseph, I would be destroyed. I would die on the spot. But they keep eating. And eventually the food runs out and they got to go back. And, and, and the oldest son says, look, I will take care of him. And, and, and Jacob says, oh, no, 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 I'm not trusting him to you. And then Judah goes to his father. And Judah says, dad, I will take care of your favorite son. I won't let anything happen to him. And if anything does, it'll be on me and on my family. And Jacob says, all right, sucker. They go down to Egypt. They get the food, and they're headed back out of town. All of a sudden, they see the blue flashing lights and hear the sirens behind them. And they get pulled over to the side of the road. The officer walks up and says, sir, I need to look in the trunk of your camel. <clears throat> because the, 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 the cup, the silver cup of the, of the number two man in the kingdom has been stolen. And sure enough, they find it in. Benjamin's sack. 
They get hauled back. And Joseph declares the sentence, you will remain as my slave in Egypt for the rest of your life. And here's their big opportunity, right? Here's their big chance to leave daddy's favorite son in slavery in Egypt, just like they did to Judah all those years ago. And in that moment, Judah steps up. Let me, let me read you what he said. It's in Genesis 44, verses 33 and 34. He says, Now therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go with, up with his brothers. For how shall I go to my father if the lad is not with me? For fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father. Judah offers himself in Benjamin's place to be a slave in Egypt precisely because he cares how it will break his father's heart. And the question that I have this morning, the question that I want you to think about is how do you go from being the kind of guy who will sell daddy's favorite son into slavery in Egypt, destroying his father's life, into being the kind of guy who will trade places, offer himself in the place of the son his father loves. To be a slave in Egypt because you love your dad so much. How does that happen? Well, the answer is the story I'm going to tell you today. It's chapter 38 of Genesis. It's the only other story about Joseph. And not coincidentally, it happens right in the middle. It happens between selling Joseph into slavery in Egypt and offering himself in place, Judah offering himself in Benjamin's place. Well, remember, this is bad old Judah. This is, this is Judah whose life does anything but praise God. And, and the, the, the story begins here with, with Judah and his wingman, uh, a guy named Hira, an Adolamite, whatever that means. Uh, and, and, you know, they would go out and they would, they would cruise the towns looking for chicks. And, and, and eventually, uh, apparently, Judah met a girl. We don't know what his, her name was because sadly it doesn't matter. But what we do know about her is that she was a Canaanite, and here we have a problem. Uncle Esau had married a Canaanite girl, and it broke Isaac and Rebekah's heart. Because it, that relationship tended to take him away from where his loyalty should be to God. Jacob, of course, had married, well... The right kind of girl, but two of them. That's a story for, issue for another time. And who does Judah follow as an example? Well, he, he follows Uncle Esau's example, of course. And he marries a Canaanite girl. They, they have three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Now, we don't get any, any details about the boys growing up, but we do know that eventually, when Er grows up and it's time to get married, well, <clears throat> Judah has a choice to make. He can either send Er back to the home office to marry the right kind of girl, 
or he can, well, let Heir make his own choice about who to marry, like he did. But no, again, Judah being Judah, Judah arranges a marriage to the wrong kind of girl, a Canaanite girl, and we do know her name. Her name was Tamar. Now, I don't know what Heir did, but I do know that Heir erred badly. And God executed him. Just as a quick aside here, um, <clears throat> this is one of those places we need to check our view of God. Because if your view of God is, is as the kind old Santa Claus sitting on the throne who would never hurt anybody, you need to go back and read the Bible. The wages of sin most assuredly is death. Now, this leaves Tamar in a really, really bad position. Because there is no such thing as social security. There's no such thing as life insurance. And she can't go get a job somewhere to support herself. She doesn't even have any children at this point, a son who could rise up and provide and help and take care of her. So look at verse 8. <clears throat> look at verse 8 here. Judah says to Onan, this is the number two son, he says, look at this. He says, go in to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And all God's people said, ooh. Now look, I have a sister-in-law. I love her. She's great, but no. Now, what this was, was a way of providing for a widow, but it also puts Onan in a really bad, awkward kind of spot. Because you see, that last bit of that sentence there, raise up offspring for whom? For your brother. Now, understanding inheritance law is really, really difficult and usually incredibly boring unless there's a lot of money at stake. And that's what's going on here. So let, let, let's just let's talk about Old, Old, Old Testament, ancient world inheritance law just real quick for a second. You see, here's how it worked. So if you're a really, really, really ridiculously wealthy person, like, say, Judah, and you have three sons... The way it works is, when you die, your inheritance, your wealth, gets divided into four parts. Take the number of sons, add one. The firstborn son gets a double portion. In this case, 50% of Judah's very considerable nest egg. If Onan helps Tamar to have a child, that child will not be Onan's heir, he will be, say it with me, heir's heir. <laughs> I know, it's a bad joke, but it's low-hanging fruit. You got to take what, it, you know, what you get, right? He'll be heir's heir. That means that Onan will get 25%. But, but, if Tamar doesn't have any children, 
Then there's Onan, there's, there's Shalah. There are only two sons. You divide Judah's wealth into three parts. The oldest surviving son gets the double portion, two-thirds. And my goodness, that would just happen to be Onan. Without going into details, let's just say that at this point, Onan decides that he's going to do whatever he has to do to make sure Tamar doesn't get pregnant. This is probably, almost certainly, history's first example of a he said, she said, in which she said, no, he didn't, and he said, yes, I did. But if you think that what you do in the privacy of your bedroom isn't seen by God, you need to go back and read your Bible. What you look at, what you do, whom you do it with, or in this case, what you don't do. Because what Onan is doing is he is abusing a woman who is completely defenseless. There's no court that she can go to. There are no DNA tests. There are no hidden cameras. There's nothing she can do to protect herself. But the Bible shows us something very clear, and that is that God is the defender of the defenseless. So be careful who you mess with. especially those who can't do a thing to stop you. And God executes Onan as well. At this point, we're down to one son. And Judah, like any good American parent, knows that it cannot be his kids who are at fault here. Right? So look at verse 11. Judah says to Tamar, look, go back home, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shalah grows up. But what he's really thinking is, she's going to kill him just like my other two boys. So Tamar gets sent back. Now we don't know how long she's back in her parents' house. Maybe it was a year. Maybe it was two years, maybe it was three years, but the point is that she realizes eventually that there's no shalah. This kid's not coming. In the meanwhile, Judah's wife dies, and Judah is back on the market. So he calls his old friend, Hira the Adolamite, and they go cruising. They decide they're going to go up to to Timnah to the sheep shearing festival. Now, sheep shearing festivals were, 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 were raucous parties. There's a, there was a lot of alcohol that flowed because sheep shearing is hard work. I know this because I read about it in a book. Okay? And so they'd work hard, shear sheep all day, party all night, you know, kind of like finals. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and, and apparently, you know, maybe Judah had, you know, one for the road. 
And, uh, and, and he and Hera are, are headed up there, and, and Tamar hears about it. So she gets all gussied up. She, she puts a veil on. She goes down, and she sits beside the road. And she's waiting. And Judah comes along, and he sees this beautiful young priestess and decides he's in need of a worship experience. So he looks at her and he says, hey, baby, want to go to church with me? <clears throat> now, for her, in the role she's playing, this is a business proposition. And so she says, well, what are you going to pay me? He says, well, I'll give you a goat. She looks to her right. She looks to the left. She looks back up at Judah and says, I don't see no goat. He says, well, what do you want? Ah, look at this. Look at verse 18. What pledge shall I give you? She said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Now, the staff would have been just slightly taller than the person who, who held it. It would have been carved around the top with symbols. It shows that the bearer of that symbol is a prince of his clan, the head of his clan. That's Judah, prince of the tribe of Israel. The seal was a cylinder. Think of it like a thimble of thread with a hole straight through the middle, except this wouldn't have thread on it. It would be wood, it might be stone, but it would be carved, again, with symbols. And the idea is when, when, you, when you had to sign a contract, you would take this off and you would roll it across the bottom of the clay on which the contract was, was being inscribed, and that was your unique signature. Basically, she has just asked Judah for the ancient equivalent of his driver's license, credit cards, and social security card. And Judah, again, playing the typical American male, goes, oh, okay. And <clears throat> they find a place, they go in, and all God's people said, Ooh. yeah, exactly. Now, Judah goes on, Tamar goes back home, puts back on her widow's clothes. And as soon as Judah gets up to Timnah, to Timnah he, he, goes to, he says to Hira, look, here's a goat, take it, go back, give it to this girl so that, you know, get my stuff back. So Hira goes back to the town and he looks around and says, uh, where is the temple priestess that was here earlier, and all the, the men of the town go, our daughters would never do anything like that. So he goes back to Judah, and he, he says, couldn't, couldn't find her. <laughs> Verse 23, look at this. Judah says, well, let her keep them, otherwise we will become a laughingstock. It's like, uh, Judah, you're about half right. 
But it ain't we who are going to be a laughing stock. It's you. A month goes by. Two months. Three months. I'm not sure exactly how long. But people notice Tamar starting to look a little pudgy. Now, <clears throat> we think of the ancients as not being all that smart. Because they didn't have air conditioning, television, or baseball. But they were a lot smarter than we give them credit for, and they definitely knew where babies came from. And they knew Tamar shouldn't be pregnant. So they send word to Judah. In verse 24, look at this. Your daughter Tamar has played the harlot. And you've you got to say it, you know. And behold, she is also a child by harlotry. And Judah says, bring her out. Let her be burned. She's a witch. What Judah is doing here, he is claiming the right of a priest. You see, if a girl committed adultery, both she and the man she committed adultery with were supposed to be stoned. But if she was the daughter of a priest, then she was to be burned. And presumably, he was too. So, they bring her out. And just as they're about to tie her to the stake, she pauses and says, uh, Last words. All right. Say what you're going to say. She says, Well, the man who got me pregnant belongs to these. And she holds up the seal and the staff. And the people looked at her. And they looked at Judah. And they looked at her. And they looked at Judah. And all God's people said, Ugh. Now, at this point, the Judah that we all know and despise would immediately turn around, scribble something on a piece of paper, blow the ink dry, hold it up and say, but your honor, I reported those things stolen like two years ago. But that's not what he does. And here's it, here it is right here. Look at verse 26. Judah recognizes them. And he says, she is more righteous than I. Inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shalai. Judah. A prince of Israel. The head of his clan has just acknowledged that this pagan, pond scum, Canaanite girl is more righteous than him. She cared more about the line of Judah continuing than Judah did. The Bible tells us that she was released. And that Judah did not have relations with her again. Next time we see Judah, excuse me, the next time we see Judah, he is there in Egypt offering himself 
as a sacrifice in the place of his father's favorite son. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God indeed. Apparently, God humbles proud people. That's almost the end of the story. It is the end for Judah, but it's not the end for us. Tamar ends up giving birth to twins. One put his hand out first. They tied a scarlet thread around his arm, but he drew it back in, and the other son came out, Perez, technically the second born, although he was the first to get all the way out. Yow, and without an epidural. They name him Perez, another name that means something. It means breach. What a breach you have made for yourself, they said. And then the other brother came out, and his name was Zerah. Perez would be the great, 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 throw a couple more greats in there, grandfather of a man we'll meet later on in Scripture by the name of Boaz, who, of course, was the father of Obed with Ruth, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Maybe there is something of Advent in this story after all. Because not only is it essential in ensuring that the line of the promise would continue and get us one day to that manger in Bethlehem. It also shows that God calls the unfaithful. A proud man whose life is supposed to praise God, but doesn't. You know, I think we're all Judah. A Canaanite woman. One of the last people you'd ever expect not only to become one of God's people, but to become a grandmother of the Messiah. And if God can humble a man like Judah and transform him into someone who looks like, well, taking the place of those the Father loves, bearing their punishment, someone who looks like Jesus. If God can take Tamar 
and humble him. Use her. Work through them. Then perhaps he can do the same with us. Perhaps there is no pride so powerful in your life that God can't break it down. God does indeed oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. Humble yourself because he cares for you. Bow your head with me in prayer. Lord, the truth of the matter is I, we, come into your presence this morning still bearing the marks of pride in my life, in our lives. It takes different forms in each of us. Arrogance, anger, an expectation that people will recognize the skills, anger when they don't. Thinking that we're better than we are. Lord, we we try, or we'd like to think that we do. But in our deepest and darkest moments of honesty, we recognize that there are points of pride that we cannot pull down. work on us. We know that if you could humble Judah, then you can humble us. If you could use Tamar, then you can use us. Lord, we ask that as we seek to be who you've called us to be, as we seek to humble ourselves, that it will not take what it took in Judah's life or anything like And yet, Lord, when you do answer, when you do work, help us to know, help us to see that you are answering out of love, not anger. Out of grace, not judgment. For we know this, looking at that child laid in a manger, that man crucified on a cross. He is more righteous than I. And because he rose again, we have hope. Be glorified in us and let our lives sing your praise with our words, our deeds, 
our character. In Jesus' name.